I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we look into a variety of celebrity memoirs and we say, what would they most want to say out loud if given the opportunity? And we give their words an even louder voice for the masses. And okay, I guess some of these are kind of hard to understand if you haven't heard us talk about the book first. This was originally an upfront thing where you were supposed to share information with people and that information was supposed to be like that if you don't like this podcast, you fully legally don't have to listen to it, that we're going to keep doing the thing we've been doing for now over 100 episodes. And if that's not something you're interested in, you're more than welcome to find something you're interested in. Before saying something mean to us, how about instead just try changing the channel? Yeah, just think, do Claire and Ashley have full ownership over the information of Jason Derulo's life? And if that were even true, is Jason Derulo's life something that is critical to my well-being? No and no. So if you don't like the way we tell the story of JD, get it elsewhere. That's what this was supposed to be about, but you've really taken it and like lost the sauce. Based on the dry noodles I eat every night, I've been losing the sauce for years now. Are you eating dry noodles? (laughs) Sometimes, yeah, because I can never find my sauce. It should be in the refrigerator. Anyway, Ashley, do we have any news for the people? Yes. And it is that in case you missed it, we restocked our very smart worm pullover sweatshirts and our cute little worm tanks. So if you are in the market for some worm merch, we also have a few, not that many, but a few ugliest girl in the world attack hoodies left. They are perfect for the winter time, for the fall, when the sun starts to fade and your skin goes back to regular. You're going to need it. (laughs) This is per high demand too. We've had a lot of people ask us to restock the smartest worm in the world. Sweatshirts. It's called the Very Smart Worm Sweatshirt. Sorry, Ashley does our copy and I don't read. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so those are in our shop on our website. If Tuesday episodes aren't enough, don't forget that we do a weekly bonus episode every single Thursday at patreon.com slash celebrity memoir book club where we talk about pop culture and so much more. Last week, we had an incredible conversation about personal style and sex in the city with Allison Bornstein, the creator of the Three Words Method that you've seen on Instagram and TikTok. And soon you can read about in her upcoming book, Wear It Well. And Claire. Yes. If you were to write a memoir about your life, what would you title last week's chapter? The dorks are right. The boomers were onto something. The Facebook moms had a point. Those dorks, what were they right about? I used to be so cruel (laughs) about anybody who ever referenced date night with like their husband or boyfriend. And I was like, you fucking losers. (laughs) What do you mean date night? You live together. Get a grip. Find a better Instagram caption. Go on caption. a date when you sleep. <laughs> Did you not wake up this morning? Did you not share a bathroom? That's a date. <laughs> That's a forever date, baby. But I just say, now that I'm in like a long-term live-together relationship, I'm like, oh boy, you got to plan those date nights <laughs> or else you'll lose the magic. I haven't seen Mac in three weeks. We're going to get to the altar and like barely recognize each other. We go from the honeymoon to straight I go on tour with you, my real husband, <laughs> the only constant in my life. I have a real family and that's Ashley and Bug and that's who I financially support. And then I have a mistress and that's Mac. And we have not gotten to spend time with each other. So I guess we'll like get married strangers and then in a couple years we'll get to settle down and see if we made the right choice. I'm like, oh God, I guess we got to plan a date night or else we'll never see each other. That's nice. I'm out here being like, should we get a reservation? Should we see a show? Oh my God, a show could be fun. What do you dorks do? I want to go to the show. (laughs) Matt goes, we go on dates on the time. And I go, what do we do together? He goes, we go on walks. I go, walking is not a date. (laughs) Walking is like my transportation of choice. That's a commute. (laughs) We commute together. So that's where I'm at. 
I bow down to the normies. It turns out I'm one of you and it's pathetic, but listen, the memes are memes for a reason, right? I think it just means you're married now. Ugh. Ashley. <laughs> yes, My Claire. cool young friend. <laughs> oh, I do not have an answer for that one. <laughs> if you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir, what would this week's chapter be called? It's not cool and young. I have baby fever. Ew. I know. Okay. I don't want a baby. We know this. We know that I don't want to have a baby, but I used to like really be freaked out by them overall. And I like didn't really like to be near them. And now I like really like them. The good ones. I know that there are still some bad ones. Me and my neighbor baby are really getting along. Your neighbor is a baby? Yeah. There's a baby who rents upstairs for me. People say, Ashley, how can you afford this apartment? I say, how can that baby afford the apartment? (laughs) I'm sure it has a large Instagram. Me and my neighbor baby are good friends now. (laughs) And I went to go see my friend's baby that I was so scared to hold when it was born last year. And now we just like hang out. We were having a great chat. She's working on crawling. It was really cool. (laughs) And my brother's about to have a baby and I'm like excited for it. That is so cute. I really like baby clothes now. I really like chatting with babies. It's funny when they do funny stuff. I haven't been around like a real grumpy crying baby in a while. So that could really flip this whole car around. But yeah, I'm pro baby now. I love that. (laughs) Do we get into this week's book? Jason Derulo. Claire, sing it. Jason Derulo. Wait, sing your name. Claire Parker. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have as many syllables. So I was screwed from the get go. Wait, sing my name. Ashley Hamilton. <laughs> I love this Should I sing bug. Bug's name? What's her yeah. name again? Anne. Bug Anne Hamilton. <laughs> I'd be like, like, Bug Anne Hamilton. Bow, bow. It'd be very Hannah Montana. So this week we read Jason Derulo's book, Sing Your Name Out Loud, 15 Rules for Living Your Dream. This is one of those books that has a theme to it so that he can get away with writing less because when you do 15 rules, You can repeat all of the same information under different bullet points, but because it's like part of a different concept, you can just say the same thing over and over and over again. Cheat code for those of you who are writing your memoirs and your listicles. This was a book that I'm actually genuinely excited to discuss. It should not have been read by any human being. No. I'm so worried for the nine 12-year-olds out there who are getting their hands on this book and will be ruined forever. This is like psycho training ground 101. This was written by AI for AI. Literally, it's like if you have a teenager who's not popular with the ladies or with the boys or with anybody, (laughs) but they have a dream. If you have a middle child (laughs) with like a secret resentment harbored in their skull, this is the book that will unlock it and turn them into American psycho. If they wouldn't necessarily have had an eating disorder, but you're hoping they might get one. Yeah. This is the book for them. If you've ever seen those videos that are like 19 things you didn't know were happening in Indiana Jones and that person has a 94 million person subscriber base and you're like, how are you the most followed person on YouTube that nobody knows? This is how Mr. Beast came to be. If you told me Mr. Beast read Jason Derulo's book and took it to heart, I'd be like, of course, that's how we end up with a Mr. Beast. So unlock your own inner beast and let's dive in. Author note, sing your name out loud. So this book starts with a very interesting choice of tale. And basically it's that Jason Derulo was a very hard worker growing up. He sounds like he was a good kid. He stayed out of trouble, but he was a mess. He had a very messy room because he was focused on making music and this sick beat. And his mom comes up and says, what are you going to do when you have your own house? Your house is going to be messy too. And he said, mom, let me quote, I'm never going to clean my own house. I'll hire people for that. And his mama flips out. 
She can't believe what an entitled little bitch she raised. She's like, what are you talking about? People are going to clean up after you. And he says, it wasn't even about cleaning. It was about everything. I think that I should only focus on the thing that I'm most passionate about and not be distracted by any distractions. That means cleaning. That means cooking. He's the most one-track-minded person there ever was. And he is like, that's actually a good thing. And he says, I believed it to my core. You need to believe that you can achieve something in your heart of hearts and be willing to put in the necessary work to make it happen. And he says, it's really important to manifest. The external world believes what you tell it and your body believes it too. I used to say things like, oh, I'm so blind, I can barely see. I noticed that my vision started to get worse and worse. I used to tell people that I had trouble remembering things and my memory started to deteriorate too. This has gotten more and more intense as the years have gone on and I've become really careful of what I say. Now you'll never catch me talking bad about myself because I refuse to tell the trillions of cells in my body that I'm inadequate in any way, shape, or form. I focus completely on the positive instead. What? <laughs> Isn't that so funny that he said, I can't see, presumably because he had bad eyesight, and then randomly, not randomly, manifestively. His eyesight got worse, as eyesight tends to do. No, it was the negative words. Don't tell yourself that you're sick. Tell yourself you're healthy. That's such a good idea. Doctors, quit your jobs. You guys are making people sicker by telling them that they're sick. I hope that reading this book helps you believe in yourself and gives you the confidence that you have all the tools you need to succeed in whatever field and at whatever scale you dream about. For example, his dream is become a billionaire. Why? Because he wants to be. And you may say that's crazy, Jason Derulo, but he doesn't think so. Okay, this is why I was so confused by this book, because I remember when I was reading it, I felt like I was reading for hours and then I got to chapter one and I was like, how? How did I just now get to chapter one? But I see there's an author's note there's a title page, once again, called Sing Your Name Out Loud. And then there's like an untitled another section called Your Dream is Within Your Reach. That again seems to not be a chapter. So he used to wake up at four o'clock in the morning. And that is important to note because he went to a performing arts high school that was far away from his home. And he says he would never hit snooze. And I was like, yeah, fucking right, man. When I was in school, I was competitive, intense, and unafraid with a confidence that I hadn't yet earned. At the same time, I was introverted. It took me a long time to warm up and get to know people. More than anything, I was focused. I worked hard and never complained, and I took every lesson and opportunity that came my way. I straight up do not believe that for a second. He says, I knew deep down I needed to work hard so I'd be ready when my time came. From a young age, I had an uncanny ability to translate emotions into lyrics, whether or not I'd experienced the emotion for myself. And this kicks off this odd acknowledgement that he like never really knows what he's talking about. I don't know how to explain it, but I find it so unsettling that he is so openly willing to admit that he like doesn't believe what he's saying. He's like, I know what you need to hear. So I'm just going to like figure out how to word it properly. I and mean, that's why there's like no soul in anything he writes. He uses the word art in this book a lot and has no idea what art means. He is like a data-driven hit maker, and he like recognizes that even though he has a ton of number one singles internationally, nobody knows who he is. And he even recognizes, he's like, I have no brand. I have no authentic self. I have to learn how to be me authentically. But then he'll be like, the way that you figure out how to be authentically you is you run the data and you see what your audience wants. <laughs> but he also is like, the reason people don't resonate with me is because they don't know the real me. But like, he also doesn't know the real him because there is no real him. He is like this orb of Twitter likes and saves. <laughs> I mean, he's a profit margin. Yes. He is like data and statistics. He does not care about awards, mostly because I don't think he's ever even been nominated for one. I don't even think that they knew to invite him. He is the king of what I call bodega music. It's <laughs> songs that you always hear in the bodega and you have no idea who sings them, but you know every lyric and like they're catchy. When you're waiting for your sandwich at 2 a.m., you're like, okay, let's keep the party going. But you would never pick it yourself. And you know who's the queen of bodega music? Haley Steinfeld. Exactly. 
I don't know. I feel like these songs are perfect on playlists. Like you hear them on a lot of playlists because they like fit in between the songs that everyone's really excited to hear and they won't upset you when they come on. You're not like, oh my God, who the fuck turned this on? You're just like, oh yeah, this is another good one. I'm going to go grab a drink while it plays. So he keeps talking about how he wanted to be the biggest singer of all time, but he had no connections. When he was young, he saw Michael Jackson in Romania playing music and he said, I'm going to be him one day. I'm going to be an international sensation. On TV. He wasn't in Romania. (laughs) (laughs) I relied on a set of principles that I had created during my childhood and teenage years. And when I was ferocious, relentless and determined to beat any odds stacked against me. His daily routine is he would wake up at 4 a.m. for school. He would go to the bus. He would go to school, come home and like work all evening writing songs, just like writing song after song after song using the emotions he'd heard other people have. Okay, so then he says this, which I find so interesting. He says, the most important thing is defining what success is to you. And I do agree. Like you do have to know what success is to you. Otherwise, how do you chase it? For example, Andre Agassi. I guess because of all the meth, couldn't just be like, I want to be ranked number one. He had to be like, I want to run all four championships. Yes. So Jason Derulo's success is all about eyeballs, sharing, downloads, and sales. My definition of success has always been about interaction and impact. To be the best is to be the most played and most shared, period. I want the numbers on my side. The more people that like something, the more of an emotional impact you make, the more your work connects with someone on a personal level, the better and more successful it is. Making your way into someone's emotions gains you a follower for life. I never define success by anyone else's standards. And here's the thing to me. It's that last part where he loses me, the part where when you make your way into someone's emotions, you get a follower for life because that's not actually what he's saying. He's not trying to work his way into their emotions. He's trying to work his way into their playlist. Like it's numbers or it's connection because he does not have both. The way in this book, he's always like, and what matters most to me is that I've been a part of your really important moments. I've been critical to people's lives. I'm like, no, you have not. I mean, you can't argue with him when he says success is about downloads and you're like, well, you've got a lot of downloads. So in that sense, you are extremely successful. But when he says it's about the emotion, I was like, and here is where we butt heads. (laughs) Well, I just find it interesting. He goes, I've never defined my success by anyone else's standards. So what isn't success? To me, success has nothing to do with awards, notoriety, fame, pats on the back, mentions or advertising deals. You want to impress me with anything but reach, interaction and numbers. Thank God he's a good singer and a good songwriter because... I guess he would have ended up being Ben Shapiro. If your basis for success in an art form is just like mass downloads and mass consumption, that's not really seeing it as an art, I have to say. You know what else does gets a ton of downloads? Andrew Tate. <laughs> well, I was going to say when a duck and a horse are friends. Yeah, but that's art. <laughs> I do think it's really interesting to me that mass appeal to him is not the same as fame. Because I think what he's looking for is fame. So I think he's looking for money. I guess. He, he says several times it's not about the money. And it's I not know, about, but he's lying. It's not about the money, the money, the money. No, he's lying. Because then other times I'll be like, admit it. It's about the money for most of us. Yeah. I guess those are the contradictions throughout yeah, this Yeah, that's book. what's ridiculous about this is I feel like so much of it is good advice about just like hard work and defining your own success where he's lying is anytime he says he cares about art and he cares about emotion and he cares about impact. He cares about impact in so much as he thinks that's a better way to get somebody to definitely download your next single. Yeah, I think that that's where I get thrown around by this book is because if he wants to say like to me, success is getting the most amount of downloads. I can't argue with that. It's not what I think of success as. And I like fundamentally disagree with him. But if that is his definition, that's his definition. But then when he talks about like not really caring about fame and attention and money, I'm like, well, that's not true. And when he talks about caring about like reaching people emotionally, I'm like, well, that's definitely not true. I mean, it's definitely not true. And it's so funny because he's like, 
Success can't be determined by external factors. To me, success is determined by being the biggest external factor. You're like, I know I made good art when 1 million people downloaded it and said it was good. But that's not outside of myself. That's my own definition. For those of us who are deeply motivated by this kind of artistic pursuit, fame and money are not the end goals. No doubt they're nice to have. I don't have these sponsorship deals and post these advertisements for nothing. Today, I want to make money to show black kids that they can make money using their brains. But honestly, those perks aren't why we got into this in the first place. He's just lying. He's so driven by money. And this part too, a big part of it is how you feel about what you're creating. Other people's opinions aside, do you like what you put out? I mean, later in the book, he gets into one of his bigger singles and he's like, there was nothing about that song that really hit with me. But like seeing how much other people like it makes me like it now. I mean, he constantly is saying that the most important thing is that other people download it and like it. He literally talks about why he picked pop and it's because he ran the data and said, this is your biggest chance at having the biggest audience. And he's like, but to me, it's about whether or not I like it. But what I like is based on what the most people will like. Yeah, he says that the reason he didn't pursue R&B is because it doesn't have the same global appeal that pop has. But if you ask me what I'm most proud of, I will tell you without a doubt that it is the content I have made over the past few years through my collaborations on TikTok. This is humiliating. Because it's one thing to be great at a single artistic pursuit like singing, but it is another thing altogether to start something new and find the same level of success with it. This kind of winning on multiple platforms comes down to planning, determination, and execution. It comes down to having a clear set of rules for your art and putting those rules to work. I'm sorry. What is art to him? Art is just like content. Yeah. So one of the things that he says that I actually do think is smart is he says that you will not be successful if you do not have a plan. So I think that creating these like metrics to measure himself against and these goals is good advice and it's very smart. But then he like backs it into a corner with some gibberish about art being TikTok views. And I was like, I don't think that we are on the same page here. This is a good book about how you become successful in any field. The fact that he insists on calling his field art is insane. Yes. Lesson one, take risks. Failure is good. And this is about the decision he, quote, wrestled with like crazy, which is singing his own name at the top of a song. (laughs) Did you know that the first single he ever put out was What You Say? And it was the number one hit single. And I'm like, that's pretty impressive. That is really impressive. Having a number one hit is very hard. I will give him that. I think most of the people that you guys think of as like the best artists have maybe had a few number ones. It's really hard. It is weird, though, because you go, it's so hard to do. Like, Taylor Swift doesn't have as many as you would think. Ariana Grande didn't get her first until Thank You Next. And then you go, but Jason Derulo's just hitting them out of the park. I think he's had three or four, which is a lot. I think it's more than Ariana. Yeah, but I also think that Ariana is, like, trying to make pop music that people like that also is, like, very deeply rooted in emotion. And he has no roots in emotion. He's saying... What is the idea that the most possible people can relate to? And what is a beat that the most possible people will be hypnotized by? I mean, if you look at What to Say, he put that song out in 2009. He wrote it before that. That song like resurfaced in an episode of The OC when Marissa dies in 2006. So that was like heavy in the zeitgeist when he was trying to break into the industry. His most recent number one was Savage Love, which was based off of the beat of a major TikTok sound. So he like finds these beats that are already in people's heads and he's like, okay, I have to add lyrics to this and make it downloadable. Genius. It's so smart, but I'm just saying it's not the same as like what Ariana Grande is doing. I mean, he's literally the musical version of ASMR. Yes. He is somebody who's like, I saw your video got a million views. What if I started cutting sand next to it? Pretty smart. Now I have the number one video of all time. What if I show you how different things smash? (laughs) Have you ever seen glass being blown? You ever seen a rug being washed? (laughs) Pretty good while you watch an episode of the Kardashians to the left, huh? Now that's what the people want. 
If you want to have a chance of huge success of any kind, you need to be creating content as part of your daily routine. I don't care who you are. There is no way around this. If you are a poet, you need to write poems. Singers, you have to sing. Gardeners plant seeds. Comedians, you got to tell jokes. Don't say that to me. Shut don't up. Don't you fucking say that to you me. You don't know a fucking thing about my life. Lawyers, take us to law school with you and teach us about the law. Creators, create. Invite us to the wonderful world of yours, whatever that may be. He quite literally means like you have to be posting social media content. That there's no way to be successful at anything unless you're creating social media content. Yes. Tell that to Jennifer Lawrence. Tell that to that plastic surgeon who got her license revoked for making TikToks. <laughs> the essence of being creative to him is putting your own spin on a proven formula. That's not creative at all. <laughs> That's the algorithm. I just can't believe that to him, he's like, the most creative thing you can do is to find out what creative thing people already like and then make it your thing. Yeah. Have you ever heard of patterns? <laughs> Don't invent anything new. We've already got a wheel. Innovate? Why innovate when you could iterate? <laughs> I don't think it's wrong to iterate. Like, I don't think what he's saying to do is wrong. I just think he's getting all his words mixed up. That's not like the essence of creativity. It's a fine thing to do, especially if your goal is getting views. If your goal is to reach the most people, then create a new version of the thing that people already like, of course. But like, that's not creativity. So his other big thing here is like, it's okay to fail. And sometimes failure is great. For example, he failed at his soon to be hit single Wiggle. When I wrote that song, the lyrics were, you know what to do with that big black truck. This paragraph made me irate because you can shove your fucking nonsense about Ben Shapiro creativity down my throat all you want, but do not lie to my fucking face about the original lyrics of Wiggle. You don't think the original lyrics were, you know what to do with that big black truck? I really don't. I do. Can I say why I think it was? Because you think he was just rhyming? No, because I think he was looking at like what songs about butts have been successful. And he's like, I like big butts and I cannot lie. Okay, butt is a bit obvious. He has, he says earlier in this book, he loves to write a metaphor. He loves a simile. And so he said, well, what else is there? And he goes, oh, dump truck, dumps like a truck, 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 truck. And he goes, that song was a huge successful. So definitely what the people love is when you compare a butt to a truck. What do people love butts do? Wiggle. And he's like, okay, make that truck wiggle. And to him, he said, it's logically sound. It follows the pattern of what people like. There's no way to lose. It makes me so mad. He did ultimately switch lyrics to, you know what to do with that big fat butt. Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. <laughs> anyway, art. Finally, art that resonates. <laughs> art that connects with the people. I actually love that song, I will say. I mean, we all love that song when we hear it, but when was the last time you said, I'm going to choose to do this? A big theme in these songs is he's like, the radio didn't want me to do it because they said it was too raunchy for radio. And I'm like, you write some of the most sexless music I've ever heard. <laughs> Talk Dirty to Me is a kazoo song. It's a song that's played on a kazoo. He goes, hello, girl. Would you sit on my lap? Oh, wink, wink. Like you're in a traveler's chair. It all feels <laughs> like prohibition era cartoonery. <laughs> All his songs are like the least sexy songs. They're all so horny and so unsexy. Anyway, so in order for him to come up with something as magical as you know what to do with that big fat butt, he had to fail first in order for the magic to arise out of something. And he talks about his failures trying to get noticed, trying to sign a record deal, how he like initially was putting music on MySpace. He was trying to grassroots it. Now that I'm like reading these back with you. I realize how all over the place all of these are because he's about seven things to say and they all have to do with TikTok. And he says them all in every chapter. 
but he says, you know, you got to get out there, just be posting every day, try new things. It's easier to try new things before you're famous. So take the risk now. And I actually agree with that. That's something I was told as a comedian early. It's easier to fail and bomb now when there are no eyes on you than when you're big. So take the risk, find out who you are. He says, try something you've never tried before, whether it's in another genre or another voice, or it's something that's just plain wacky. At one point he goes, maybe you should have multiple accounts that all have different voices because he's really big into niching. He's like, if you go viral with something and that is what the people want, only give them that. And if you have to make other content, try making an entire another TikTok account and have 25 TikTok accounts going where you're trying all kinds of content at once, niche down per page. It's like not wrong advice, but he takes like a morsel of reasonable advice and makes it the most insane thing you've ever heard. It would be fine if he said, here's advice for how to get the biggest numbers possible if you're looking to make a ton of money in the creator fund. The creator fund is what pays you out based on just dollars per views. This is not how you build notoriety or a brand or respect or expertise. This is not how somebody becomes known and loved and respected. This is just like throw the spaghetti at the wall. Did people like the spaghetti? Make more spaghetti. <laughs> I almost wish we'd waited like 18 months to read this book because I really feel like the way he talks about TikTok is going to sound even in like six months, the way Denise Richards was talking about Twitter. So basically, he just says, all you got to do is start. Just start. You got to start. But then he says, what you also have to do is listen to feedback, but you also have to listen to your gut and you have to find the right balance of listening to your gut and listening to feedback. Oh my God, I forgot what he says next as an example of being passionate about what you do and not just like following the patterns that work for everybody else, even though he just told you to follow the patterns that work for everybody else. So he talks about a failure of his and a risk he made, which is he invested in a company that does alcohol and clothing. He's like, it worked for Jay-Z. It worked for P. Diddy. Why wouldn't it work for me? Because no one knows who you are. I've never heard anybody be like, I want swag like Jason Derulo. Anyway, so he lost $600,000 in that investment. And he's like, I'll never invest again. And then he meets this guy. Named Danny White, already at the gate. I'm stressed about that name. And Danny White tells him, you've got to invest in car washes. The future is in car wash subscription models. So he invests in car washes and now he's making a ton of money. He goes, to prove my point about doing research, that car wash company has been one of my greatest financial success stories and stands to make me a boatload of money. Sticking to your own research and following your own rules will lead you down paths you never expected. And then he talks about how you need to be passionate about the things you do and not just do what everyone else is doing. And I was like, okay. Your lessons are be passionate about what you do and do your own research and don't follow the trends. However, you had never even thought of a car wash until someone else came and said, look at all my research. He keeps being like, you have to follow your gut. But it sounds like you had to follow Danny White's gut. And then speaking of following your gut and listening to your passions instead of the research or whatever, his next example of a failure is about a song called Cheyenne, which he felt was his most personal song to date. And everyone he played it for said they loved it, but it just didn't perform on the charts. And he's like, well, sometimes you can't listen to your gut. But it's also so funny because he's like, to me, all that matters is that a lot of people listen to it. And a lot of people didn't listen to it. So to me, that song was a failure. But you know who did like it? Michael Jordan, Taylor Swift, some of the biggest people in the world. So even though it's pretty cool that all the most influential people in the world like my song because it wasn't a number one hit, it was a failure. And I'm like, I still feel like you're bragging. I mean, he says, I had known that releasing something darker and making a cinematic video was a risk but I felt strongly that it would pay off, that it had seemed more than worth it. Over time, failures like this have taught me to not be so precious about my songs. My job is to make art and share it with the world. Okay, so this is what I like fundamentally disagree with. For him to say, I experimented with something that felt truer to me and it didn't quite resonate, but it's what felt right. I'm like, then stick with that. Then keep going and make people want to listen to that because if it's actually good, people will find it. But to be like, well, nope, I tried one. It didn't work. What other song was trending from a TV show that I can remix? 
On the other side of creating something meaningful to you, it's more helpful to consider why it succeeded or failed and move on with the new knowledge in hand. So he says that all risks are good because if you succeed, great. And if you fail, great. You can learn something from it. But here he's like, what I learned is don't follow my authentic passions. Do what the audience expects of me, which is a very funny lesson. And then he goes on to say, I never wanted my songs to fit into the mold of what the radio was playing. The critics said Talk Dirty was too dirty, but I stuck with my gut. What are you talking about? It is weird to me. One of the pieces of feedback he gets all the time is that his songs are too raunchy. And I'm like, your songs are hardly the raunchiest songs I'm hearing on the radio. Growing up, I was a huge fan of Dip It Low. Yeah. Like, that's a raunchy song. What about Lollipop? And so he's like, I didn't care. I knew it would either get written off as the trashiest trash or would be huge. He did care. Yeah, to say that he didn't want his songs to fit the mold of what the radio was playing. But also he's like, I figured out what everyone on the radio was doing. And I analyzed it. I condensed it. And then I made it my own. His music is so good for fitting in with exactly what exists. That's the thing is a lot of his advice is good. But the problem is he's lying about who he actually is. And so every time he talks about his personal experience, I'm like, well, shut up, liar. Well, can I say something? The reason some of this advice is good is because much like his music, he just put every idea that he's ever heard anyone else say into a book. And so like every 10 sentences, you get one that makes sense. Well, that's what I wrote to you. I said, the thing about this book is truths are true. And I do think there's like 10 universal truths about success that almost anybody could put in a book. To me, the truth about this book is Jason Derulo. But I did like this book better sort of than Shonda Rhimes because he is open about being a psychopath. Yes. And I think to become this level of successful, you have to be a psychopath. And I appreciate that. He's like, listen, I work harder than anybody I've ever met. Even when I was 11, I couldn't have friends because nobody else was single minded like I was. I lost people because all I wanted to do was work. I'd wake up at 4 a.m. and work for 15 hours. It turns out most eight year olds don't do that. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I can't have a wife. I would never pick her over work. Not ever. He actually did just have a baby. And I'm so excited to see how that plays out. They broke up. Did you notice that in this? He says, my former girlfriend, my girlfriend at the time is because he had a girlfriend, a TikTok girlfriend for a few years. And then they broke up. Right, right. But the baby's not his former baby. The baby never was his current baby. (laughs) His former girlfriend had a baby with his sperm. He's the legal father of that baby. I don't think anybody in any circle ever for an ounce expected him to raise that child. He's going for primary custody if that kid has an ounce of natural talent. He's probably going for primary custody right now just so we can hire somebody to raise it. (laughs) The one thing I do like that he says in here is he's like, listen, if you take a risk and fail, that's fine because everybody loves a comeback story. And I'm like, that's a good way to frame it. Like the harder they fall, the mightier they tall. Totally. (laughs) That's a good saying. Do people say that? Yes. This was all the first chapter called Take Risks, where he talks about how you should and shouldn't take risks. And I agree and disagree. So let's get into chapter two, unlock closed doors, but go through the open ones first. So what he means by this is there are going to be places you can't go because they won't let you in, i.e. you and me. They wouldn't give us a TV show. Totally. But now it's fine because the TV shows are on strike. And I say, haha, guess who's not on strike? The non-union podcast we do. But so he's like, if they won't give you a record deal, start writing your own songs. And he got, what is it, a publishing deal, which is when you're a songwriter for a record label who like is taking your songs and giving them to who they think is better songwriters. Giving them to better singers and artists, people with charisma. So he says he initially started songwriting because he loved singing. So he would practice singing all the time, which, you know, I find to be a deeply unlikable quality in someone. Imagining like living with him when he is just a nine-year-old who won't stop singing around the house makes me want to scratch a chalkboard to just relieve my ears. (laughs) Something he does say that's very interesting though. So his parents immigrated from Haiti 
And they very much did like the standard, like one brother went first and then he went back and got all of the siblings. There was 15 siblings and they all moved to the same town in Southern Florida, an hour north of Miami. And he said growing up, every single townhouse on his block and for blocks was all of his aunts, uncles, cousins. It was just all extended family. So everybody he knew growing up was his extended family. And I found that to be a really interesting and unique upbringing. And I wish he had talked about his childhood more because clearly he's insane. And I'm like, so what exactly happened that made you the way you are? Exactly. Like, I genuinely am interested about what it's like to grow up with all family. I feel like it would make you like laid back and fun to be like, okay, every day is a block party. And so his mom gets him into a performing theater camp. And he's like, I don't know where she found the money. And I have to say it's so sweet. At the end of the camp, she says, I don't know what to do with him. He sings all day. What should I do? The director encouraged my mom to enroll me in a performing arts school. So that's what she did. And so he goes to this performing arts academy for high school. So he would sing all the time, but he could never remember the lyrics to songs. So he started writing his own songs because he found out that it was a lot easier to remember them when they were his songs. And he got pretty good at songwriting. And then later when he was trying to get into the industry, he knew it would be a lot easier to break in as a songwriter than it would be as a performer. So he got in originally as a songwriter with Beluga Heights. If you don't know it, let me say it this way. Beluga Heights. If that helped. But so he was a hustler his whole life. His older brother, Joey, and then his two cousins, Harry and Henry, were like his team. They made a makeshift recording studio in their basement. They would pass out his demos to anybody who would listen. He was like in high school trying to get out there as a songwriter, as a singer. They would go to the clubs. They would sneak in and beg the DJ to play their music. He said that the easiest clubs to get into, which were the most willing to play their songs, were the strip clubs. His songs are really good strip club songs. So his first credit came when he was still in high school. A DJ he knew named New Jersey Devil had a connection to a little rapper named Pitbull. Little in height, not in notoriety. And they got Pitbull this song called Hush, and Pitbull agreed to be featured on it. And then having that Pitbull co-sign helped him do a song for Birdman. Who then helped get him hired for P. Diddy's Making the Band, which was being filmed in South Florida. He went in, they gave him seven minutes to write a song to a beat. He wrote a female empowerment song because he knew that's what P. Diddy would want for their band. And he got hired. It sounds like he didn't get paid at all. Or maybe he got paid a per diem, but he didn't get any rights to the songs that he wrote for that band. I think that most of the time songwriters get like a chip on the back end. And because this was a four TV competition show, those songs like weren't getting radio play. They weren't selling records with them. So there wasn't really like money to be made. The way he says it, it makes it sound like he did not make a dollar. Yeah, I don't. He might not have. He was an intern. He did all the work. Anyway, so then him and his mom are in a bit of a standoff about college. She says, you have to go to college. And he's like, for what? And she's like, for life. And they agreed to do two years. And he goes to like an arts college. That was what was shocking to me that he had this mom who was like, you have to go to college. And then he went to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy in New York City. And I'm like, okay, so she was very supportive. Yeah, she didn't make him go to like Miami. Yeah. My goal had always been to become a recording artist he starts falling in love with performing at college. He does a lot of musical theater stuff. And he ends up auditioning and getting hired to do the touring cast of Rent. And then he turns it down because he realizes, I don't actually want to be in musical theater. I want to be a pop musician. And so, like, why am I spending all this time auditioning for something that I don't even want when I get it? He stops auditioning and he puts all of his time and energy into making music. And then he gets a contract at Beluga Heights which is part of Warner Brothers Music. And he's going to be writing songs for Sean Kingston. But then when he gets into the studio with the producer whose imprint it is, he's like, why aren't you an artist? You have a great singing voice. And he's like, exactly. That's exactly what I wanted you to say. So he gets to start making some of his own music. They brought Sean Kingston both What You Say and Replay, which I didn't realize Jason Derulo wrote. 
And Sean Kingston passed on both of them. I think Sean Kingston did okay. One of the reasons he had so much time to pursue music is because he felt so burned by love that he actually had no interest in it. Back in high school, he dated a girl. She just like cheated on him. And he was like, I'd been so burned by love at a young age that I had no interest in relationships. And this is something that I have no fucking patience for. Every male memoirs we've ever covered is like, I don't know, I was 14 years old and a girl said something kind of rude to me one time. And that is my villain origin story. And I have to say, shut the fuck up. And now I can't raise my son because when I look at his mother, I think she's a woman just like that woman who hurt me. I am so repulsed by men and they're pretending to have emotions. They have all the wrong ones. <laughs> we're like, open up and we're like, close it down. Everything you just said was the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Put a pin back in that. Why don't you try operating on autopilot by how you think a good man acts? <laughs> I don't want to hear your editorialization. Anyway, so he writes these songs. Sean Kingston passes on them. Ayaz ends up picking up Replay. But Jason gets to record what to say for himself, and it ends up being a smash success. The next lesson is you are only as good as your routine. He's addicted to his routine. Oh, my God. His routine is basically having an eating disorder. <laughs> this is not even fully the eating disorder chapter. Yeah, but this is where you get a sense of it. <laughs> success is not a sprint. It's a marathon, and you have to train for it as though you're preparing to run for the rest of your life, which is why... His routine of like waking up at 4 a.m. and saying that like that's the most normal thing you can do is crazy to me. Like I get when he was in high school and that's the time he had to wake up to get to school. But he will constantly throughout this book be like having a routine is the most important thing you can have. Anyway, sometimes I phase in and out of working out a lot. I'm like, so do you have a routine or no? Do you like push yourself to the absolute limit and then fall apart? Yeah, his routine is do as much as you can every single day, regardless of what your body is telling you. <laughs> So he moves to LA, he gets this publishing deal, it's 40 grand, and he gets an apartment he can't afford. And his mom is like, why did you do this? And he goes, because it gives me drive and hustle. Now I'll have to make this work so that I can afford a place to live. And he's like, listen, I'm not saying you should do that, but it's what worked for me. And I'm like, that's a really bad advice. It's very Jim Carrey being like, I wrote myself a check for a million dollars and I said I would cash it. Don't do this because like he said, success is a marathon, not a sprint. And so if you give yourself a timeline, like rent being due to make it, that's bad. That's like a really stupid thing to do. So I just want to point out when he was in college, he was so broke that he was only eating four bananas a day. He did not know that that would not be good meal choices. Get pasta. <laughs> he was like, did you know that that would make you constipated? I was like, of course I knew that. Who <laughs> wouldn't know that? Have you heard of beans? <laughs> but so he's like, I only had a dollar to eat off a day. So I came up with bananas. And now he's broke in LA. He'd be able to afford to eat if he wasn't putting all his money into rent. And he's like, the studio had unlimited free cookies and you could get one meal a day for free. So that was like my big meal. And so he would wake up every day, work out, go to the studio, spend all night at the studio and then go home. And he says, I didn't have any friends in LA. I didn't know any girls there. I didn't do anything besides just make music. I don't think this is a good life. Like, I think it led to him being very successful. But at what cost? Because he seems horrible. Think of your daily routine as the rules for your life and then just follow them. That's it. Sometimes <laughs> the most effective things are really the simplest. To this day, no matter what I want to achieve, I create my daily routine by looking at the end goal and working backwards, creating a trajectory that's made up of smaller goals that I can complete each day. In other words, I figure out where I'm trying to go and then I plot out the steps I need to take every day in order to get there. Then these daily goals become a non-negotiable part of my routine. This is just a schedule. <laughs> every day I wake up and see what needs to get done and then I write those things down and then once I've accomplished those things, they're done. That's a to-do list. To become someone you've never been, you have to do things you've never done. I mean, that's good advice. But overall, he is very stressful to me. 
When I'm trying to get my body into an amazing place, I set a goal to work out three times a day, lifting twice and getting some cardio in once. No lie. That's not easy physically or mentally. I don't think that that's correct. I don't think you should be working out three times a day to be Jason Derulo. (laughs) (laughs) It might sound crazy coming from me, but consuming and sharing on social media can have a real negative impact on your mental health. Your routine needs to be to not care about what the haters say. Put that in your daily routine. (laughs) So how does he combat the haters online? Because he says they get to him too. The best way I've found to get past this self-doubt is to force myself to stick to the plan. Routine. To-do lists. You could say the haters all say I suck and should never post again. But what would I tell my to-do list? (laughs) My to-do list says post every day. That's such good advice. So he talks about the haters online. He takes a minute to be like, listen, it really hurts. And then actually he says exactly what we say, which is like, have you ever met somebody who leaves mean comments online? No, they're not real people. They're all dorks. It never comes from a place of superiority. You only write mean comments online if you feel bad about yourself. If you're one of those people who does this to me or to anybody else, seriously, stop. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) You're not going to make yourself any happier or more successful by tearing down someone else. And then he goes, but another thing is maybe you should be taking the advice. He always is crowdsourcing his own personality, for example, and using it to help himself. Are you ready for the next section? Success is for rent. You'll You'll never never pay pay it off. off. This is, again, kind of true. He says that no matter how successful you get, there's always more. You're never on solid ground when your goal is success. He does say, though, I started my career terrified. I'm currently terrified and I'll end it terrified. And I was like, okay, Jason. I don't think you should be terrified. Terrified feels like a big word. You should be terrified when you're alone at home and you hear somebody walk around downstairs. But you shouldn't be terrified that your like 25 million view TikTok isn't going to do as well tomorrow. Success is a long-term commitment. It's about being able to capture people's hearts and minds so you can become a part of their everyday lives over multiple years. And in my case, multiple decades. If you can do that, you're golden. So he does give us a little bit of memoir here. So I'll just summarize that. He talks about growing up. He always was a good singer. And he would enter talent competitions constantly as a way to make money. He was obsessed with entering as many as he could. From the time he was like 11 years old, desperate to make it in the industry, and always shocked that the meetings he was winning at these talent competitions weren't going anywhere. He was undeterred, however, until he got to Showtime at the Apollo, which is a really big deal. It was like a talent showcase that existed for decades, and then they turned it into a TV show. And basically, the audience has the ability to like boo you off stage or clap you on to the next round. And he got on the TV show and he won the entire thing. He won the series. And he, as I would assume too, thought that meant that someone from the industry would reach out or somebody would write an article about him or something would come up. This would be a break of some sorts. And literally nobody cared. I think he is not even like without charisma, but he is like kind of a black hole of charisma. Like it absorbs through him. And you're like, what am I looking at? He's the elevator music of pop. That's when I realized a fundamental truth about chasing down my dream. I had to do it by myself. Nobody was going to come along and hand me a career or even an opportunity. If winning a huge competition like Showtime at the Apollo wasn't going to do it for me, then nothing ever would. And this is like the parts that I liked because I'm like, wow, we're just like Jason Derulo. (laughs) We're the unsuccessful Jason Derulos of the world. (laughs) We're not like Jason Derulo because we have each other. He, okay, I'm looking at the cover of this book and he looks like he is on Sesame Street. He has this bright green sweater. He has this yellow background. Ashley said before, he's like kids bop light. And I'm like, no, he's kids bop heavy. It's like they took the watered down beat from a pop song, turned into a kids bop song. And then they said, can you come up with a non-cuss word sex song to this? And he goes, talk dirty to me. Like, look at his outfit on the back cover. It is the worst outfit I've ever (laughs) seen in my life. He looks really bad. Oh, my God. He looks like the sales section at like a Marshall's. He looks like he was in some kind of perverted supermarket sweep where they said, with your (laughs) eyes closed, grab three articles of clothing and put it on. 
So he says that one of the things he knew that he needed to be successful was to get radio play. And so he like set out to make friends with every program director at every radio station. Like the determination in his soul is so impressive. But overall, there's something about him where I feel like even if he came and was like, I'm going to treat you to dinner and then hopefully you'll play me on your radio station. I'd be like, what did I do for dinner last night? Which is say goes number one. And he says for an artist's first single to become a number one hit is less likely than being struck by lightning seven times. That's a real stat. Okay. Okay. I actually don't believe that because I think there's probably other people whose first songs have become number one singles. You're telling me that there's a lot of people who've been hit by lightning seven times. Find me one. (laughs) I don't believe it. I don't believe your numbers. Recrunch them, bitch. So, so far, the actionable pieces of advice that we've gotten so far are, I think, to just like keep making stuff and sometimes listen to your gut and sometimes listen to other people. So his whole thing is that he'll like work on lyrics and work on lyrics and he loves the hooks he writes because he writes things to be international hits. So I guess he specifically is writing lyrics that are like swalla walla, walla walla. <laughs> he talks about coming up with the lyrics to swalla la, where he's like, shimmy, shimmy, yo, shimmy, yay, shimmy, yo. It came to us so quickly. <laughs> You know what these songs are for? They're like for Netflix originals. <laughs> That's the song you play as the lawyer girl who never cuts loose finally is going to have a night out with her friends. It's the bachelorette before all hell breaks loose. Shimmy, shimmy, yo, shimmy, yay, shimmy, ah. Swa-la-la-la. He goes, I think about the words that people would want to say to their friends in the car, to their girl in their bed, to their mom on her, <laughs> at her funeral. <laughs> I put those lyrics into a song. Oh, my God. When your friend comes to you and says they're having a hard time, you ask them if they know what to do with that big fat butt. (laughs) So another example of incredible songwriting is, you know, the song In My Head. It's like, in my head, I I see you all over me. In my head, you fulfill my fantasies. So it was actually originally In My Bed. But then the head of Kiss FM in LA was like, kids can't sing to this. So he went back to the drawing board and then he had a strike of genius. They say lightning doesn't strike twice, but it struck Derulo hundreds of times at this point. And he switches it to in my head, which now makes it just a fantasy and not something literal. Yeah. Kids can be horny in their head. (laughs) Kids think horny thoughts. They just don't do horny things. And so we need a song that they can relate to. Then it became a hit. Thank goodness for all the groundwork he laid with those program directors at the radio stations. After being in this business for almost 15 years, it's still a challenge to temper my ambition. But do I even want to? To keep paying the rent in an ultra-competitive industry, I have to be like a dog, relentless. I have to be obsessed. It's not for everyone, and it comes with its downsides. But if I want to continue this unique and special way of doing life, it means, for better or for worse, my work and my art will always come first. This is where he says nine times out of ten work comes over his girlfriend, and if he's being honest, it's not nine times. (laughs) I love when he's honest. Lesson five. Stop showing off. Invite your audience to the party. Oh my God, I forgot how crazy this part is. So this is all about like how things don't need to be fancy to be good. And his example of something that's not fancy to be good is Whitney Houston's cover of I Will Always Love You, which feels like a crazy thing to compare yourself to. It's one of the great songs of all time. And to call it not fancy, to say like one of the greatest vocal performances that's ever happened wasn't like a show off moment. I'm like, he's like, it's something that audiences could connect to because it was kind of simple when you think about it. I'm like, yeah, simply be the best. (laughs) So he was invited to open on Lady Gaga's Monster Tour. The one hitch? He only had two songs. (laughs) So how is he going to do 30 minutes of concert? I cannot stress enough how uncommon and unlikely it is for an artist with no album and only two songs on the radio to get an invitation to join the biggest pop tour in the world. Well, then how come Gail was on the Eras tour? 
why did he get this opportunity? Because Lady Gaga's audience had bullied Kid Cudi out of the job. Apparently Kid Cudi, as he takes no shortcuts in describing, had been the opener and her audience would like boo him off stage and start screaming Gaga Gaga. And so he took on the challenge. And at first he wanted to mimic her over the top out of the box lifestyle and performance style. But he's like, she barely gave us any stage to work with. So it was me my seven backup dancers and my two songs and all the spikes in the land. And it turns out that wasn't good. So then it hit him. He heard it when he, he said on the radio and he goes, this is what I need to do. I need to make it simple and connectable for audiences. So what does he come up with? He starts doing his two big hits once the way you hear them on the radio. And then he would perform them again, acoustic. And then a third time <laughs> he would do a rock and roll version. I thought he was going to say he started covering Whitney Houston. Me too. I thought he'd go, oh, I'm going to do covers. My version of other people's songs. No, no, no. He started covering himself. So you would hear two songs three times. That's 30 minutes of songs. Count them up, bitches. <laughs> you got your fucking money's worth. He also says here, early on in my career, I believed that I should constantly strive to be the most exciting, most innovative, and most spectacular performer in the world. Today, that's exactly who I am. But I wasn't <laughs> there yet then. Back when he had two songs, he wasn't yet the most innovating, spectacular performer in the world. We haven't been able to get here yet, but one of his best performing TikToks is this TikTok where he jumps into his own pants and has 50 million views. He does also compare this TikTok to Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. <laughs> he compares them directly. And I just think when you're saying, Jason Derulo, is he not innovating? Is he not spectacular? Is he not exciting? Have you seen the man jump into pants? <laughs> he doesn't even cheat like other creators do. He makes a big deal about how a lot of people who do this cheat by tilting the pants, not him. He box jumps five feet into the air, into the pants. <laughs> Just like Whitney Houston. So he talks about how he's been able to use TikTok to expand his audience and to reach new bounds with his art. And he says that like originally he used to use social media to reinforce the version of him that he thought he had to be. Much like when he opened for Gaga, he thought he had to have spikes and a Lady Gaga-like performance. But he realized that he could figure out who he is and present the audience with himself. Himself being three versions of the same song. So he says that for years, like up until 2020 when he got on TikTok, He'd been really projecting this like sultry and serious image. And I can't believe the lyrics of Wiggle when I was listening to it today. And I was like, the 2014 hit Wiggle reinforced your serious and sultry image. The part when you said your booty's like two planets. God damn it. Go ham sandwich. <laughs> when he jumped into pants, he jumped into himself. Anyway, he sees TikTok as a really great way to connect with his followers. To be your authentic self, you sometimes have to run the numbers. So he was doing things that he thought people would like, and then nobody was liking them. So he ran some numbers, and he found out that 75% of the most liked videos on TikTok were actually comedies. So he started doing comedy because he wanted to be liked. And would you believe that that's what worked? And every time something did well, he would put in a lot of money and try to do a high-tech version, and that bombed. So then he learned what worked is being authentically yourself in the way that gets the most likes numerically per the data. He recreated this viral TikTok where a girl leaned over to get something and her boyfriend slapped her butt, but she anticipated the butt slap. So she reached back and they ended up high-fiving him and his girlfriend recreated that TikTok. And he calls that Whitney Houston's Dolly Parton moment. Could you believe that I got 150 million views? Hell no. But then again, I doubt Whitney Houston ever thought she'd be best remembered for a stripped down cover of a Dolly Parton song either. I want to throw up. <laughs> Okay, you guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you will notice we changed outfits. What happened was we were so overwhelmed by how complicated this book was that we had to take a whole day break to prepare <laughs> again because 
when I read it, I remember being like, oh, this will be the easiest book in the world. Every chapter has two or three funny things he says, and every chapter has one theme. And then when I was going back and looking at it, I was getting so overwhelmed because the stories are so circuitous and they all reference each other. And there's only like four stories in the whole book, but they're stretched out in different ways. And then a lot of the times he's just ranting and raving in a way that contradicts himself. So I'll be like, the whole point of this essay is that you should never listen to your team unless you have a good team. But this time he had a bad team and you're alone. (laughs) Being alone is best, but being collaborative is better unless being alone is best. And I was just like, I actually am very confused. Jason, what you say? (laughs) And we had to take a whole 24 hours to just digest and review and explain it to ourselves once again. And where we found ourselves is nowhere better. Chapter six, obstacles are opportunities. So here are the obstacles that were actually opportunities in this situation. Obstacle number one was the first time he was going to go on a world tour. He kept practicing his backflips. And for some reason, they were practicing backflips on concrete to the point of exhaustion. Like it was the end of an eight hour practice day. And for some reason, they were like, just do backflips until you can't anymore. Well, can I say someone said just do? I think that this was his idea entirely. I think he was with his trainer, though. Someone should have stopped him. The idea of being like, do backflips until you physically collapse. Guess what happened? He physically collapsed. And guess where he landed? On his head. And guess what happened? He broke his neck. And he was like a centimeter away from paralyzing himself. Yeah, but everybody always says that. That's a memoirist bingo. Yeah, but I think that most neck breaks, you're either almost paralyzed or you're paralyzed. He was so upset about breaking his neck. He said, what did I do to deserve such a freakish accident? Who breaks their neck? What you did was you did backflips to the point of exhaustion on a concrete floor. And who breaks their neck? People who do backflips to the point of exhaustion on a concrete floor. (laughs) What a freakish accident. Anyway, I was boating blindfolded. You would never guess what happened next. So the opportunity, of course, is because he couldn't do anything but lie there. He spent 10 months writing some of the best songs we've ever heard, like Talk Dirty, Wiggle, Trumpets, Marry Me, and The Other Side. I only know two of those. Yeah, me too. Anyway, so let's talk about some of the other obstacles that became opportunities. He also says because he was able to take the creative risks like the song Talk Dirty. Again, if you don't remember, the risk there was that Talk Dirty was raunchy in a way that nobody on radio had ever heard before. He was able to build an even bigger audience and do an even bigger world tour. So there you go. Opportunity. So then the next obstacle is that he decided his label was not a great fit for him anymore. He didn't like that he wasn't really getting the respect he felt he deserved for having sold 200 million records. And they were still trying to tell him what they thought his music should sound like. And he said, what do I have to do to earn some respect around here? I'm going to a new label. He thought that with his 200 million records sold, he could walk into any label and they'd be like, Jason Derulo, thank God you're here. But instead, what he found is they said, you're a very expensive new signing. And that's not really what we want right now. It is so interesting that somebody as big and as nothing as Jason Derulo couldn't get signed to a label. Well, can I say it's not that he couldn't get signed to a label. It's that he couldn't get signed to a label for the upfront price that he felt he deserved. Yeah. If he had just said no money down, you could get Jason Derulo right now. I think he would have had no trouble. Imagine having Jason Derulo play at your birthday party. I don't know why, but I just picture him singing at a gas station. <laughs> like he comes as a package duo with the wacky inflatable arm man. <laughs> Right? Don't you feel like Jason Derulo would be singing under that? I know he's like extremely successful, but that to me is the type of performer he is. To me, he's the type of performer who would do a pop-up in a subway and expect everyone to like gather around and be like, holy shit, I saw Jason Derulo performing at Union Station. And then people would be like, why is that guy playing Jason Derulo songs so loud? Or no, they wouldn't say Jason Derulo songs. They'd be like, that guy is playing 2000s radio hits and I'm trying to catch a train. 
Speaking of world tour, we are putting our plug for our own shows in the middle of the episode, just in case you're somebody who skips the beginning and is sitting there thinking like, God, I wish these girls would come to Chicago, but you don't know that we are because you skipped the beginning. Please know that we have tickets on set right now. Our first Chicago show sold out. So we added a second. DC sold out. So we moved to a bigger venue. So we have a few more tickets available now. We also have Denver, San Francisco, Philly, DC, Nashville, Atlanta, and Minneapolis. The Toronto shows were amazing. Please ask anybody about them. We had so much fun there. Get your tickets while you can. They do sell out quicker than you'd think. So please don't leave to the last minute if you want to go. It always breaks my heart when you guys DM us and are like, are there any tickets left? And I'm like, no, you only had six months. Back to the Derulo. So what did he do to get out of this? He went independent because nobody would give him what he wanted. And then he came up with this brilliant plan to have a number one hit single. What he did was he found a song that was already super trending on TikTok. It had 50 million downloads on TikTok already. And then he wrote lyrics to it. And then before he released it, he was going to release it as an independent artist. But the guy who wrote the beat actually signed to Columbia Records. So it was illegal for him to now sell this song. But he was like, it wasn't illegal for me to upload it. And they could cease and desist me all they want. But the internet is a virus. So he illegally uploaded this song with a beat that he stole. And believe it or not, writing lyrics to a song that's already the number one hit song, it only became more of a number one hit song. And he was able to have like a hit song as an indie label. And then, of course, he did end up going with Atlantic. Yeah, he said he had a really good time being independent for a long time. And I think a long time was like a year. He thought it was the best thing he's ever done. But he does also feel that signing with Atlantic made more sense. So I think it maybe sounds like he didn't like being an indie artist. So he says, this is why I treat most endeavors in my life as a battle. From the early morning gym sessions when I don't feel like working out to the eight-hour rehearsals when I don't feel like dancing. My next business deal when I don't feel like talking and posting content regularly when my life feels way too chaotic to even think about it. In these moments, I focus on simply showing up. Trust me, there's a lot of mornings when I don't want to, but at the end of the day, my body works for my mind. No matter what, my mind is the boss and my body has to do what it says. People will tell you that your mind and body are one, but this leads us to allow our bodies to make choices for us. And we all know that they don't always make the best decisions. This is such bad advice to say, don't listen to your body, force it to do what you want it to do. If he had listened to his body, I bet he wouldn't have broken his neck. If he had seen that his body was feeling exhausted and his brain didn't say, no, keep going, I bet he would have sat down and saved the tour. Yeah, sometimes you need mental stamina. I think that I would only be able to do like four seconds of a plank if I only listened to my body. But like, there's a line. Rule number seven, decide what is more important to you, then connect it to how you spend your time. This chapter is very unique and important, I believe, because it shows that boys write unhinged eating disorder chapters too. This is so insane because it was written a few weeks ago. This is a recent book. And the fact that nobody checked this for eating disorder material. Male privilege. I remind myself that there's no meal that tastes as good as having a six pack feels. For me personally, I feel my best when I'm a very specific size and weight. And that's a tough state to maintain. I tend to fluctuate up and down if I'm not careful. Let me tell you, my friend, if you are having that much trouble maintaining the state that you think feels best... It probably doesn't feel best. He has been working out and dieting since he was a kid. In the summer, Florida heat, he used to put on garbage bags and run around in sweatpants to sweat out all of his water weight. Sometimes he does intermittent fasting. He's been vegan. He says that now he does his own form of intermittent fasting. Where he doesn't eat all day and then eats a nice dinner. At one point when he was trying to put on gains, he focused on getting more protein. So he started every day with a salmon smoothie made with canned salmon blended with hot sauce. Ew. I know it sounds disgusting, and it absolutely was, but I got shredded with those smoothies. For working out, consistency is key. You're not going to get very far working out for one week, burning yourself out, and then getting right back on the couch. 
Even if working out is just the icing on the cake as far as your fitness goes, it's still important to exercise for energy and general wellness. It does sound like he's burning himself out and then spending a week on the couch. He's working out three times a day. That can't be good for you. This is the craziest line in the whole book. I never know when someone in the audience is going to ask me to take my shirt off. I've got to be prepared at all times. You could just not take your shirt off. Or better yet, take your shirt off. And even if you're not shredded like a boxer, you're still like probably fine. He says, I always work out. Always. Five times a week at least. This is just maintenance for me. And I feel as if I look pretty average when I keep it to this level. If you are working out five times a week and you feel that you look pretty average, that means you have like a hormone imbalance. You need to go to a doctor and have your thyroid checked. Five times a week should be enough, especially if you're eating salmon smoothies and 1000 calories a day. I think he just has body dysmorphia. He also says, again, that's just me. You're not competing against anyone but yourself. If you're starting from nothing, get going by doing a little bit every day. Try to keep one-upping yourself. If there's an activity you enjoy, do more of it. Exercise three times a week is great for your health and will give you a decent lifestyle. Decent. He's like, if you want to be fucking disgusting. If you want something more, then you have to be willing to put in the time and commit to working out at least five or six times a week. He also then goes on this whole thing about how sleep is crucial and it's great for recovery and it's how you make your body really change. I'm like, I thought your whole thing was never sleeping. He reminds me so much of those girls on TikTok who will spend two years being like, the only way to get out of the industrial health complex is to eat nothing but bee pollen <laughs> and simple syrup made out of wildflowers. And then two years later, they'll be like, for the last two years, I haven't been able to get out of bed because all I've been eating is bee pollen. It turns out the fact that I never had dreams, I hadn't had a poop, <laughs> that my spit has been lime green. That I would wake up in the middle of the night and throw my body at the window because my soul was begging to get out. <laughs> These were not helpful for everyday life. I'm feeling a lot better now that I'm having, you know, cereal. <laughs> Jason Derulo is going to go from having never slept once in his 38 years of life to being like, actually, I now do this thing called super sleep where I sleep for 23 hours. And then that one hour I'm awake, I'm super awake and I do more than anybody else. It's much better to be hyper effective for 60 minutes than really effective for 22 hours. So this next chapter is called Those Who Can Do, Those Who Can't Become Critics. A lot of people have jobs built around an artist's success, and it's common for them to try to sow seeds of doubt in order to justify their jobs. This may sound harsh, but it's the truth. I've also learned that just because someone has a certain job title or an opinion, there's no reason to automatically trust them. So basically, this chapter is about how he doesn't trust the people around him because they've led him astray once or twice. And so he says that basically, the people who are your biggest critics are probably the people who are on your team that just happen to not agree with you. He also says that experts don't know shit. This meant that when experts stepped in to offer advice on what I should wear and how I should actually connect to fans and listeners, I was all ears. But it wasn't long before I realized it was truly the blind leading the blind in this department. Can I say, an expert can't define your personal style if you haven't yet defined your personal. I agree. Like if he is sitting there being like, I don't know, these stylists like couldn't figure out what felt me. But like, why couldn't you figure out what felt you? You didn't know either. So that's why you had to bring in a stylist. They were trying to make me authentic, but they hadn't looked at the data. <laughs> <laughs> it took someone like me to authentically look at the data and figure out authentically who I am, data-based wise. The entertainment industry puts a huge emphasis on nominees and winners each year. But why should we let this establishment define success? We don't need some invisible panel of judges to tell us which music is the best when the numbers don't lie. That's so true. The thing that is most listened to is the best song. That's why the Hamster Dance won six Grammys. 
So he also talks about how the critics on his team, the people who were hurting him instead of helping him, weren't like doing a good job with his image. He had a hit song and no one knew who he was. For years, people just didn't know who he was. He goes, people were watching my music videos and the whole time they probably couldn't have picked me out of a lineup. Plenty of people were buying into my songs, but they weren't buying into Jason Derulo, the artist or the brand. While I didn't know the reason for this disconnect exactly, I started to become suspicious of the experts who'd been trying to tell me what to want, how to act, who to be. Let me walk you through these suspicions. If you are so willing to let someone tell you how to act, who to be, who is he? I don't connect with him. Can I ask something? Did Jason Derulo fall down the stairs of the Met Gala? Did he? Did he? Who did that? Because that was excellent branding. And no, it wasn't because we don't know who did it. No, Jason Derulo did not fall down the steps of the Met Gala. Why? Because that's not Jason Derulo. But like we call him Jason Derulo? The joke first started in 2015 when someone on the internet decided that the mystery man in a white suit looked like Jason Derulo and tweeted that he fell down the steps of that year's Met Gala. Oh my God, I can't believe the most notorious thing that Jason Derulo has ever done he didn't even do. And the whole joke is that any man who kind of looks like Jason Derulo could be Jason Derulo. What is happening? I can't believe that whole thing is just fiction. Anyway, so he talks about how hard it was for people to connect with him and to know who he was because he refused to put himself in the tabloids. He said, I didn't want to be known for who I was dating or for what I was doing on the internet. And I was like, okay, that actually seems to be not true because you are now most known for your TikTok. So what did he do to find out who he was authentically? He did what any smart person would do. He looked at the data. He studied successful people and said, what's their personality like? And what did he find? I know it sounds crazy, but my number one takeaway from looking at other artists and listening to the people around me was that I had to be weird. I could have denied the fact that being a little weird helped all of them stand out. So he starts acting like really aloof and bizarre and having funny hair and wearing silly clothes. But believe it or not, this still did not resonate. Putting on the persona of being a weirdo, it did not authentically strike people in their hearts. The fake persona started to fall away when he broke his neck and had time to really get to know himself. So he finally is his real self because he's been focusing on the music. And that's who he is, a guy who focuses on the music. (laughs) I'm not really sure what brand that is. I guess because when he broke his neck, he wrote all those hits. And he's like, this is me, the hit maker that nobody knows. My persona is the guy that nobody knows. And I guess by owning that, he's owned that. He kind of is the guy that nobody knows. And I guess he's leaned into it and been like, I'm Jason Derulo. I'm Jason Derulo. I just want to finish this up, those who can do. This brings me to the lesson of this chapter. Ignore the experts. And I don't just mean the misguided industry people giving you endless notes about how to change. The experts in your life include anyone who tries to shape and influence you, whether they deserve that influence or not. I love it. Do you think your mom deserves to have a say in your life? Tell her to shut the fuck up. I love that he includes the line, whether they deserve that influence or not. You may think somebody has worked very hard to earn your trust. Do not listen to them. So the next chapter is called Respect the Hive. Your co-pilots are as important as the destination. And it's about having people around you that are important to help guide you to your destination. So he starts this chapter by telling the story of when he was 11 years old and he tried to create a boy group because there were so many boy groups in pop culture. It was him, his friend Xavier, and his other friend DeAndre. They show up to the very first talent show and DeAndre does not show up. And DeAndre is a very strong singer. And from then on, Jason's like, I will never work with another person again. I am writing solo. He says right away, I had known for years that I wasn't the same as other kids, but this was the first time I understood on a deep level how fundamentally different I am from almost anyone around me. I'm not mad at those guys. I hope they have great lives today. But when it came down to our work ethic, we are not on the same page. I'm glad we disbanded so quickly because our group never would have worked. And then he goes on to be like, I work harder than anybody that's ever lived, which I kind of think might be true. Yeah, that actually does check out. 
He realizes that no one's ever going to look out for himself the way he's looking out for himself. But then he meets Frank. He does not make his basketball team freshman year, and he's really upset about it. And instead of saying basketball is not for me, he dedicates himself to basketball. He becomes obsessed with it. He says, for the next year, I carried a basketball with me at all times. I dribbled my way to the bus stop at 4 a.m. I slept with a ball in my bed. Can I tell you something? I don't think that that makes you better at basketball. I was thinking about that, actually, when I read that, too. I had that exact same thought of, like, what could being asleep next to a basketball do for you? But I sleep next to a pillow every night, and it's definitely made me more like a pillow. (laughs) So I do think there's an osmosis of sorts. I do think your, like, short-term memories turn into long-term memories in sleep. So if you're remembering the ball, it'll, like, become part of your DNA. I sleep next to Bug, and I feel like she and I get more similar every day. (laughs) So he explains that if you are someone with creative control and a vision, you need to hold on to the reins. But not everyone has the vision or drive or even the desire to be the one in control. Some people have more of a deferential personality, but that's not me. If you're a worker bee, there's no shame in that. Just go out and be the best damn worker bee the world's ever seen. Yeah, he says if you're not Jason Derulo, you should still try to be the best at whatever you're doing, which I think is actually like if you're not Jason Derulo, you wouldn't do that. He meets Frank because he's been playing basketball nonstop. And Frank is in college or he's in law school. But he used to play professionally in Switzerland. Yeah. So he plays with Jason Drulo at the court. And no matter how hard Jason Drulo works, he can never beat Frank. And one day he gets so frustrated and he's like, I'm not even a basketball player. I'm a singer. And Frank is like, no, you're not. And so he drops the basketball to the ground and just starts singing on the basketball court. High school musical, drop the mic moment. And Frank was like, okay, I'll be your manager then. And then he also helps him make the basketball team the next year. Here's why this book doesn't make sense. It's right here in this chapter, Respect the Hive. In the chapter, Respect the Hive, he brings in the story about meeting Frank to be like, here's somebody in my life that I really respect and trust and has been on my team for a while. he no longer works with Frank. And not only that, but if you actually read the rest of this chapter, which is only a few paragraphs. So he's like, I met Frank. Frank was like, you suck at singing. And he was like, no, I didn't. And then Frank is like, well, I'll help you become a singer. But even though Frank was lying about having connections, he hustled and they figured it out together. But then he goes on to be like, in basketball, I learned that I wasn't being aggressive enough. So then he goes into how hard he worked at basketball and how he made the team. Then he gets into Kobe and LeBron and that Kobe, Brian, and LeBron James are the top 10 players with the most misses of all time. And then he talks about how he's a creature of habit. So he starts like working his ass off to get better at basketball. And then he goes in this whole thing about how he eats the same food every day because he's such a creature of habit. And once I find something that works for me, I don't deviate until it stops working. Then I find something new and commit to that. That's one of my superpowers. And he's like, so that's how I got onto the high school basketball team. And then he goes, what's the lesson here? Start thinking about who's riding alongside you as much as where you're going. If you feel you're heading in the right direction at the right speed, doing work that is meaningful and successful, you probably already have the right people on your team. So in order to be like, look how much I trust my team, he tells a story about what he orders at Catch LA, his favorite restaurant. Yeah. And he's starting with a story about how he knows being solo is the best thing he can do. He's following up a chapter about how you should never listen to any experts. It makes no sense. And it really is crazy to be like, how much do I respect my team? Well, let me tell you about a time I made it on the basketball team. And in that way, I'm a lot like LeBron James and Kobe Bryant. Anyway, thanks, Frank. And it's like, that's why this book is so hard to follow, because you can't stop talking about what a genius you are. Or not a genius. He never uses that word. But like, you can never stop talking about your own what drive. What an expert you are. But do you know what? I listened to you, motherfucker, and I don't trust any expert. Damn, but that means you trusted the expert to tell you not to trust experts. Shit. Foiled again by Jason Derulo. <laughs> With his perfect logic. Okay, so this next chapter is called Trust the Data, and it's about how much he loves data. So the interesting thing about Jason Derulo is that he is not a pop singer by default. I am and always have been a music lover, period. I love jazz. I love R&B. I love hip hop. I love neo soul. I even love country music. But to succeed as an artist, I knew that I had to focus on one genre of music. 
I didn't choose which genre I loved the most or which came the most naturally to me. I chose the genre that had the greatest number of people that listened to it because I wanted to be the biggest artist in the world. From a purely numerical perspective, focusing on the most popular music on the planet would give me a much greater chance of global success simply because of all the different markets I could tap into. Charts don't lie. Once I understood them, I made it my goal to not just become a successful artist, but a global pop star. It's a great thing to make art, but doing it in a vacuum without paying attention to what people actually want to watch and see and hear won't get you very far. Even if you don't care about money, which I doubt is true, your art will reach more people if you focus on the data. And what's the point of making art if it has never had a chance to touch people's lives? It is so funny that people are worried about AI coming in and taking all our jobs because AI already did it. Jason Derulo is AI in human form. He is iRobot and he has been amongst us and nobody can even remember his name. So this fear that we all have that AI is coming to beat us. This is such a good argument. I feel like I should send this book to execs. Yeah. This is what happens when you do all data is nobody even remembers who the fuck you are. You were the most forgetful person. You're stuck doing vines on TikTok as a 38 year old man. You can have all of the success in the world and still you can walk down the street and no one will recall that you exist. He says that he never wanted to be an R&B artist because he had bigger dreams and he didn't like the idea of crossing over. He said, why cross over where I can start where I want to be? Like, why should I focus all that effort on starting an R&B and then crossing over to pop? Instead of worrying about crossing over, I looked at the data to find out what made people tick. I constantly studied the charts to discover what the masses were liking and listening to the most. People tend to put celebrities in one big box and assume that if two artists have roughly the same level of fame, they have the same level of sales. But fame does not always equal sales or streams. What songs are really connecting to the masses? So really what he's saying here is that even though Madison Beer has no streams and is very famous, he has lots of streams and is not famous and his is better. Can I read you guys the craziest sentence in the world? Yes. Most artists just create, hoping they'll reach as many people as possible with the art that is truest to them. I come from a totally different perspective. (laughs) Yes, everything I create is true to me, but I love all kinds of music. So choosing what kind of music I would make was a more calculated decision. I wanted to reach as many people as possible and brought the mindset of a record label to my art to make the music that would have the greatest potential reach. You cannot be like, the way that I approach art is as a business. That's not art anymore. It's literally armed with the data. I've always focused on writing songs that I thought the highest number of people would relate to. And this part is super important, would want to sing along to. As a songwriter, I'm essentially people's voice. Not everyone can write songs so I can put into words the things that I imagine they want to say if they could. It genuinely means a lot to me to be part of people's lives during these small, meaningful moments. It literally never occurred to me to say swa la la la, and I'm so grateful. (laughs) (laughs) If I was on the dance floor, what would I want to sing to the girl that I was dancing with? I would say, I'm putting on my shades to cover up my eyes. (laughs) I would say, your butt is like two planets. Your booty is like two planets, Claire. Then what? God damn it, go ham sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) It's not enough to rely on what's popular in order to succeed. You have to put your own spin on it. Well, then let me know when you've done that. So he says that you can't ever just copy what's already been successful. When I hear someone say, oh my God, she sounds just like Whitney. I'm like, okay, she's never making it. (laughs) You know what I always say? We'll absolutely prohibit you from being successful having a voice like Whitney Houston. That's literally the worst thing that could happen to you. People have already done that. People have already had good voices. Why don't you try being a singer with a bad voice? (laughs) When I started getting serious about social media, I took some time to learn about it and study my audience. What were they watching and responding to? So he analyzes everything. He found out that 75% of the most successful TikTok videos were comedic. He goes, okay, cool. I'll do a bunch of comedic shit too. That's when he became his authentic comedic self. So then he talks about the success of these Harry Potter videos he did. And on the Patreon, somebody asked us to talk about hack comedy. 
Hack comedy is doing Harry Potter derivative videos for TikTok when you're Jason Derulo. <laughs> Hack comedy is looking at the data, seeing what performs best, and then like recreating it. Yes. Chapter 11, collaborate, period. Choose people you can teach and learn from. Yes, I may be a control freak and a solo artist, but I still recognize that all art is ultimately a collaboration. That's not true. That is not true. And that's not what you've said over and over and over again. So he talks about collaborating between genres because it helps expand your audience and how excited he was to collaborate in country music until he found out that country music fans were pretty racist. Which is a weird story to use to be like, you should definitely collaborate. Like, look at me. The one time I collaborated, (laughs) I got horrible racist messages online. Yeah, especially after spending a chapter being like, why would I do R&B? No one fucking listens to R&B. So then he says he actually feels sorry for the people that are racist to him because the hate in their heart is way more harmful to them than it is to him, which I say, I don't know, Jason, if that's the stance you really want to take on racism. I will say I think the hate in their heart is more damaging to them than it is to like Jason Derulo specifically. I don't think racism is more damaging to a racist than a marginalized person. Yeah, I agree. He doesn't really talk about racism in this book. Except right here when he talks about how actually it wasn't that bad. Yeah. And he's like still doing country music because in real life it expands his audience base and it's worth it. Uh, And then he talks about TikTok, the ultimate collaborators app. And he gives you advice on how to duet. He's like, listen, duet even people that are really small, because if you like their stuff, other people like their stuff. And maybe one day they get big. And then he explains this really funny thing that happened to him where on TikTok, you can duet people. And sometimes people will use that to harmonize. So they'll be like, you sing the green line. I'll sing the blue line. And somebody says, sing along if you're Jason Derulo. And this guy Dalton said, you sing the blue line. And the only line in blue was the opening song, Jason Derulo. Dalton literally just wanted me to sing my name. This was so hilarious to me because most singing duets that use colored lines like this involve harmonies or alternating lyrics between the two people in the video, especially when the duet is with a celebrity. But Dalton didn't want me to harmonize or sing back and forth with him. He just wanted me to use my pretend intro as a funny setup for him to sing his version of the song. Yeah, that was the joke. Very good explaining the joke. (laughs) (laughs) I understand why your humor videos do so well on the app of TikTok. (laughs) It is very wonderful the way you are able to bring humorous videos. When people first started calling me the king of TikTok, it felt like a lot of pressure. Who said that? The people. (laughs) The peasants. The peasants of TikTok. I wasn't sure I was worthy of that title. I also am not sure. (laughs) What does the title consist of? But I decided to embrace it and lead from a place of love and positivity. And the results, both for me and for others, have been incredible. I can say, as a peasant of Jason Cerullo's TikTok kingdom, it has been an amazing place to exist. Thank you, Jason. So the next chapter is called Reveal Yourself in Your Best Light. Ignore what works for everyone else. And this is a chapter that's literally about how important it is to have good lighting. So he directs his own music videos. And one time he had a DP claim that he was lit well enough. And Jason didn't like the way it was lit. And then sure enough, the video bombed. And he's like, DPs will always lie to you. The experts will always lie to you. Directors and DPs, they have no idea what they're fucking doing. The only person who knows what they're doing is Jason Derulo. (laughs) And so then he does actually five pages of how to light yourself, be it a music video, be it a Zoom meeting. He said, if you're making TikToks, natural light is good. Posting on social media is a non-negotiable, but it shouldn't be a chore. To succeed, you have to start by looking at it as a creative outlet and opportunity. But the most important thing is to have good lighting. I mean, listen, I love actionable advice. Basically, the advice is like high and up. He also noticed that music videos perform better if they have close-ups of his face. So he started incorporating close-ups of his face. And dancing and bright colors. So he's like, that's why you need things to be well lit. Because people like to look at essentially just bright candy color nonsense. Totally. He is so close to just creating. I mean, I know we already said it, but in four years, Jason Derulo will just be kinetic sand. (laughs) 
<laughs> People love to watch kinetic sand. He is just a video of a cookie getting decorated. He would make himself into a decorating cookie essence if he could. I would love that about him. Chapter 13. Talent is overrated. Desire is the gift. And listen, I 100% agree. So basically the gist of this chapter is your natural born talent is just that. It doesn't determine if you'll succeed or fail. Anything can be done if you work hard enough. And the way he proves this is essentially by saying he could have gone to the NBA if he wanted to. Yeah, I guess at one point someone said, because you're always like the first one to basketball practice and the last one to leave, you have the work ethic to make it in the NBA. And he has taken that to heart to say, I probably should be in the NBA. The worst thing that's ever happened to me personally is the story of Michael Jordan not making the varsity team in his freshman year. Can I fucking tell you? Anything. The damage that that story has done to men as a whole. Because now they're always using it to be like, listen, look at Michael Jordan. I'm like, don't look at Michael Jordan. Don't look, don't make eye contact with him. He has nothing to do with you. Nobody listening to this podcast, nobody, anybody listening to this podcast even knows. None of your children, none of your parents, nobody you've ever walked by on the street is anything like Michael Jordan. So stop bringing up his fucking name. I don't even like him that much, but you have to stop acting like that is a relevant example to anybody in the world. Unless the person you just passed on the street is Michael Jordan, they are not like Michael Jordan. The story is basically, you have to work really, really hard, just like him. Just like him and Michael Jordan. Also, don't have a second passion. He says, if you want to become the best at something, it's a numbers game. You have to put all your time into it 100%. So like, if you want to have a hobby, drop it. Yeah, he said it's okay to want to do something fun, but fun does not always mean easy. It takes a lot of hours and energy to create something fun. (laughs) I wasn't driven to post on TikTok by the prospect of making money, but it's okay if money is what drives you. In fact, if you're being driven enough by anything, money will most likely end up being a byproduct of your success. He also wants you to know that if passion doesn't drive you, then find something else that does. It's fine if the thing that you're pursuing is not the thing you like or even want to be doing or care about at all. You just, whatever you pick, pick one thing and work really hard at it. Most people think that you have to be passionate about whatever you choose to focus on, but in reality, that's not true at all. You don't even really have to like it. Focusing on something you enjoy and you're passionate about is not a requirement. It's just for your comfort. The truth is you can work hard at anything. It's just harder to stay disciplined the less passionate you are. Which leads us into our next section, work hardest at what comes easiest. Go from good to great. So he says, whatever you're best at, you really should dig your heels in and become the best at it, even if you don't like what you're doing. So he says the reason he ended up quitting basketball is because music comes easier to him than basketball. And even though he could have been a great basketball player, it made a lot more sense to pursue music. No one is really the best in the world at more than one completely unrelated thing. I never really believed that I could be a world-class athlete and a pop superstar, but I knew that I could be one or the other, depending on how much I was willing to hustle and grind. And he says that you never can stop grinding. So a lot of people will become a successful musician. They'll put out one good album and then they'll start partying. And he says, oh, no, that is no time to take your foot off the gas. This is one reason you see a lot of artists suffer from a sophomore slump. They spend their whole lives grinding on that first album or movie or book or whatever it is they do. They lose focus when it's time to create the follow up that hits the same bar as the first. And I do want to take this time to point out that his second album kind of flopped and his third album was successful because he was laid up in bed the whole time. He also says that don't look around you for your competition. Look to Michael Jackson. He may have been the best dancer in South Florida, but that's just because that's all South Florida had to offer. He never took his eye off the prize, which was being Michael Jackson. So even from the age of four, he was saying, am I as good as Michael Jackson? And I think he would say yes. (laughs) He also says like never give more time to a hobby than you can get from it. So he was like a good example is that he was a guest judge on So You Think You Can Dance. I really enjoyed doing those live shows and I learned a lot about how to speak in front of an audience. As a singer, I'd gotten used to doing interviews about my music and talking about my songs, but that was about it. I never had to speak to a crowd in a way that kept their attention and sounded compelling and informed. 
I viewed the experience on the show as a way for me to improve those skills. But since then, I've turned down a slew of offers to appear on other shows. I had already extracted what I needed from this experience. So it was more beneficial for me to spend that time focusing on my music. I would love to date him. (laughs) I've already extracted what I can from this relationship. It's wild to me how many people do the exact opposite of what I do. They work the hardest on the things they're not so great at and lean on their existing skills to coast on the things that come easiest to them. Or they'll just try a little bit of everything. What do you want to be, a Jack and Jill of all trades? That's something he actually does ask you accusatorily in this book. And you're just like... And he says, if that's what you want to be, that's fine. You just won't be successful. The simple fact is that it's easier to be the greatest when you give 100% of yourself. Not everyone can be the greatest, Jason Also, Derulo. not everyone wants to be the greatest. It sounds really lonely and it sounds like you're having a bad time. I'm sorry. I don't want to like spend all my life making the most middling cab music just so that then I could spend all the rest of my life working out three times a day just so that I could eat one little meal just so that I could never meet my son just so that I could like write a book about how no one ever got to know the real me because there is no real me. He's still eating slop. (laughs) You came from the bottom to the top and you still eating slop. (laughs) Disgusting. For what? So the final section is called choose your competition. And it's once again about not competing against yourself, not competing against the people around you. It's about competing against the greatest there ever was. So like Claire said, you got to compete against Michael Jackson if you want to be a great performer. If you shoot for the 1% and make it to the top 10, you're giving yourself a chance to make an impact. He also tells a story about a time he failed early on when he was 15. He auditioned for American Idol and he didn't even get past like the behind the scenes round where you get to audition for the real judges. And he says that actually was really good because the American Idol contestants weren't his real competition. They were just randos. His real competition is the top of the world. It's Justin Timberlake. It's Justin Bieber. You're right, because Kelly Clarkson is not your fucking competition. She is not your peer. She is above you. She is somebody that I relate to deeply and I care about. And I would follow to the ends of the earth where I would probably pass you and not even wink except to say that man has too many trench coats on. (laughs) As an actor, it's not enough to be only as good as Meryl Streep or Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, I think it is good enough. Like, what else are you supposed to be? So many people aren't as good as her and they do fine. Once you know who inspires you, study those people. Don't just compete against them. Draw from them, too. He also draws from Muhammad Ali, someone who's very similar in my mind to Jason Derulo. Then he talks about a song that he wrote called Want to Want Me that he wasn't sure about, but everyone around him says it was good. And so he put it out and it reached the top five. And he said, well, then I knew it had to be a good song if it was such a big hit. As always, numbers don't lie. He said, this is a good example of sometimes you can't trust your gut. You have to go with what other people says because it turns out I was even better than I knew. I'm not by any means saying that you'll have a bad or somehow inferior life if you don't choose to put that kind of work in, but it's the fact that your life will be different. You can coast and become the best in your town, and that will be your legacy. There's nothing wrong with that at all, as long as that's what you truly want. Bitch, that hurt my feelings. Nobody ever became world-class without superhuman levels of work and dedication. I sure as hell didn't, and neither will you. What about Dennis Rodman? I also don't think he's world-class, honestly. Like, I think Jason Derulo is, numbers-wise, a globally successful artist. I don't know. There's something about him that is so absent. There's no there there. I honestly don't think it's out of your reach either. Nothing in this world really is. I have to tell you, Jason, it actually is out of my reach to be the best. I don't want it. Not built that way. (laughs) Also, if I did want it and I worked really, really hard. It doesn't sound that fun. Anyway, that's Jason Derulo. Sing your name out loud. 15 rules for living your dream. How fertile is this soil? There was a lot in there. I would give it a 3.9. I would give it like a 3.6 because there was a lot in there, but I don't think that any of it amounted to anything. Like it was one of those books where after every sentence I wanted to look at somebody and go, oh my God, this sentence. 
as a whole, I don't think I'll remember it tomorrow. It was a fertile soil, but for some reason... It was quicksand. It drew you in and then you were just like flailing. I think that if you planted something in it, it wouldn't grow. No. It's a bed of weeds where you go, look at how fast those weeds grow. But you're like, I don't think I want the weeds. Yeah. Okay. And then how many warm teenies would you enjoy with Jason DeRulo? None, because I don't think he would respect me. I think if I said I'm not drinking, he would like be more respectful towards me. But I'd be interested in talking to him for 17 minutes just because I'd be like fascinated to bring it back to you. Yeah. Yeah. I would like for you to have a short interaction with him. I think you would have a horrible time with him. I really don't want to meet him. If you bought this book, I would slap you in the face. It would be insane for anybody to spend money on this book. This was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. It was just the ramblings of a psychopath. And with that, I would love to thank our five-star reviewers. I love you guys so much. Thank you, LL McIND. Ladies love McIND, and so do I. Thank you, LLM Weisel. Oh my God. Ladies love you too. I can't believe the number of L's that are absolute W's on our reviews this week. Thank you, Pay Creators XOXO. Man, do I friggin' agree. You should get paid for that message. Thank you, Spicy Ramen Poops. Your poops are as fire as this fire review. Thank you, Daggetry. You've sent a dagger right through my heart, but it was a Cupid dagger that was love. Thank you, series of emojis. I can't read this out loud, but I don't think it's meant to be read out loud. I think it's meant to be read by my heart. That is all for this week. I love you guys so much, and I cannot wait to see you next week.